Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26, with Pastor John King. It wasn't a great uh, BBS, in fact. Well, let's give Miss Heidi a, a round of applause. She doesn't like to do that. She did a great job. She did a great job. Well, good morning, folks. Today we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 14 again. We'll be in verses 12 through 26. And... Um, while you're turning there, just a real quick reminder from last week, we had uh, Mark giving us a very stark contrast between the plot to kill Jesus through the treacherous betrayal of Judas Iscariot and the lavish worship and praise which is demonstrated by the woman named Mary, who had done what she could, she did what she could to honor Jesus with, in this case, the precious oil of spikenard. Yeah. Say that right. Um, today we're going to join Jesus and the Twelve. We're going to kind of come back to this final week, and we're going to join Jesus and the Twelve in a special location within the city of Jerusalem. It's known as the Upper Room, and that's where we're going to have the traditional Passover meal. This will be the final Passover before Jesus transforms the meaning entirely. And he's going to change it into a very powerful way. He's going, to, he's going to take the old sacrificial system. It's going to become null and void for his disciples both then and now. So let's go ahead and read today's word. Join me as I read um, Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. And there, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. And now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answers and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Heavenly Father, we get, again, we thank you that you have gathered us together today. And today's a special day for us as well as we share, as we join together for a family, uh, for a meal together, for food and fellowship. But uh, before that, Lord, we get to also partake of the Lord's Supper. 
We're going to have communion today, Lord. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless it and prepare our hearts as we go through this wonderful uh, story, uh, this true story of what took place, Lord God, and, and how things changed so radically that day. And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that that's what you do. You change things radically in the hearts of people, both then and now. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do it to us right now through your word, that you would speak to our hearts. Go before us and all those who may be watching on the, uh, Facebook Live, Lord God. Teach us your word. Grow us closer to you. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. So here we have uh, what's known as the Passover. We start, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. Now that day of, that day of the week was Thursday. And it's called the first day because they were going to perform the first act of preparation for the feast. They were going to slaughter a sacrificial lamb in the evening of the 14th, actually several. And on the evening of the 14th day of the month, we said last week, that's the Jewish month of Nisan. The feast would last until the 20th day. So it was the Passover followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This word Passover uh, means it's a Passover lamb. This is Pasha. It's a sacred observance in Judaism that commemorates the 10th and final plague of God in punishing Egypt by killing all of the firstborn, both humans and animals. But God made a special provision to protect the Israelites' firstborn by passing over the houses that had been sprinkled with the blood of a slaughtered lamb on the, on the lintels, the, the support above a door frame, and of course the two doorposts. They would, they would sprinkle it on there. Now this final plague was to bring about the deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Now the instructions from God were given by Moses to the people uh, first in Exodus chapter 12. And the way it worked was basically each household was to pick a young lamb from the sheep or the goat flocks that had no visible blemishes on it. And they would do that on the 10th of the month. And they would stay together with this young lamb, and of course the children would become very attached to it. You know, and that's what kids would do. It's kind of, kind of a strange thing. And so for four days they would take this lamb uh, into their home. But on the night of the 14th, they were to slaughter the lamb. They would catch its blood in a basin. They would dip a bunch of bitter herbs called hyssop into that blood. And they would strike the doorposts with this blood. And they would spread it over the lintel or the, overhang, the overhead structure. And then they were to roast the lamb and eat the meat with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. That's how they were going to have this meal. And they would also have to be dressed for travel, being ready to depart at a moment's notice, even with their staff in their hand. Because the Lord was preparing to deliver them from Egypt that very night. And they would do this. And so while the Lord was giving them instructions on what they were to do, he also said, you will do this every year. You will remember every year the things that have been done. And they still do it even to this day. Now because of their hasty departure, the bread dough was still in its unleavened form. It was just a lump of dough. And they had on their subsequent journey through the wilderness, they would have had to bake unleavened bread. Because they didn't have time to prepare. They didn't have time to bring everything with them. 
They didn't have time to take those normal provisions because they were going to leave on a moment's notice because Pharaoh was very, uh, very strange. He would change his mind, as we saw in that narrative. But notice that there were additional stipulations that God gave to the people. First of all, there would be no outsiders, no slaves, or temporary hired workers that could join in the Passover meal. Or, if they wanted to, they had to become circumcised in order to participate. They had to become like a Jew. And the meal that was to be eaten could only be eaten in the one house, each individual house. You couldn't take the meal out. None of the bones of the lamb were to be broken. And we understand that meaning a little bit more now when we look back on it, when we think about Jesus and what he's about to do and what he's about to tell us. In fact, by the time of Jesus' ministry, this Passover had become a regularly scheduled corporate event, just as the Lord had said. And there were times in the Jews' history when it appears that they may have forsaken this great feast. But by Jesus' time, it had come back full force. The historian Josephus estimates that at Jesus' time, you would get two to three million people into the city of Jerusalem, this ancient city. They would come from all over the place. And it was a big festival, to say the least. And it made the Roman authorities very nervous. And that's the thing that's taking place here in this Passion Week for Jesus. And so his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? You know, according to Levitical law, the meal had to be eaten by midnight. So where do you want us to go, Lord? Where do you want us to go and prepare this? That you may eat the Passover. You see, Jesus was Jewish and he participated in all of the traditional customs alongside with them. Chuck Swindoll, kind of, he, he breaks it down. This is a good thing for us to understand and how the, some of the details that would take place. And I'm just going to read what he would say. He says, by talking about this Passover and what took place at this time, he said, by midday on the 14th, all work came to an end as a representative of each family carried their lamb up to the temple. At about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a Levite blew on the ram's horn, a shofar. Worshippers filled the temple, the court actually, not the temple. The, the court, remember the temple complex was 30 some odd acres. And the massive gates closed behind them. Each representative then killed his lamb, skinned it, and drained its blood into a basin. Now while this mass killing of lambs is hard for our 21st century reader to imagine, killing a lamb and preparing it for supper was as ordinary a task as driving to the supermarket to shop for groceries. For Passover, however, the lamb was killed in the temple to be consecrated as a substitute. Worshippers drained the animal's blood into a basin held by a priest who then splashed it against the base of the altar to signify atonement for sin. The fat and the kidneys were burnt on the altar as a part of the peace offering, reaffirming God's, or excuse me, good relations between God and the worshippers' family. After the sacrifice, each household representative took the lamb home before sunset and roasted the meat. In keeping with God's instructions to Moses, the disciples smeared some blood on the doorpost and lintel of the main entrance to their dwelling. Remember, Jesus had sent these two uh, disciples to go and prepare 
the Passover. And that's probably what they would have had to do. They would have had to join the thousands of others, family members representing each household to go do the thing that I just described. And so in verse 13 he says, and he sent two of his disciples. Now Luke 22, 8 gives us kind of, tells us who they are. You say, who were those two disciples? And it says that he sent Peter and John. Those were the two that he chose to send. And they said, go prepare a Passover for us that we may eat. But then Jesus, you'll note, he, he did something. He had a prearranged plan in mind that he didn't reveal to everybody uh, until this time. And he tells these two disciples, he says, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Now follow him. So this man would be easy to spot because in those days, uh, those type of chores of carrying water in that society, that ancient society, even in some of our today's societies in some parts of the world, that was considered to be women's work. Women carried the water. Now again, I know that's very difficult for us to uh, get our, <laughs> our arms around in today's world uh, with m women's lib, and, and, I, and I, I agree with a lot of aspects of that. It shouldn't be just a woman doing all the hard work and all the hard labor. But in that day, they would recognize a man carrying a jug of water. And that Jesus was making these private arrangements because he needed to secure a place for the Last Supper. And he knew ahead of time already what Judas was up to. He knew of Judas's treachery. And he knew that if Judas was looking for the opportunity, remember Judas, was, Judas was been, has been you know, seeking ways. How can I take Jesus out? How can I separate him and hand him over to the authorities? And so if Judas knew they were going to meet in this secure location, then he would have probably tried to act then to betray the Lord. But Jesus was careful not to give Peter and John too much information. And then he says in verse 14, he says, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house. Again, Jesus didn't name the homeowner. He didn't tell them where exactly the house was. It, we knew that it had to be within the city of Jerusalem. He simply said to follow the man with the pitcher on his head and tell the homeowner, the master requests the room. And it says, he even told him what to say. The teacher says, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, Matthew 26, 18, another parallel to this. Uh, it says, he says, go into the city uh, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. You know, he knew his time was at hand. Now, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. We learned that according to Jewish custom, remember this was a, a city where two to three million people, outsiders, would come into this city. And they didn't have hotels and inns like we would think. You know, there wasn't a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, whatever you want to call it, different types of hotels. There wasn't a Hampton Inn available for everybody to check into, in other words. If a person in Jerusalem had a room available, if you lived in the city and you had a room available, he was to lend it to any of the pilgrims who needed a place to celebrate the feast, says one writer. It appears that Jesus had already made arrangements with this man, and the room had all that was necessary for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate this Last Supper together. Verse 15, he says, Then he will show you a large room furnished and prepared, like he said. And he says, There make ready for us. 
You know, it should warm your heart to think. I know it does. When I, when I see Jesus' plan, you know, he has a plan. He, he's not uh, like so many of us, sort of willy-nilly and sort of feeling our way through life. He has a plan and a purpose for every single person's life. The Lord looks after his own, doesn't he? You know, even as he was heading into the very worst time, he, was gonna, he knew that he was facing the worst form of execution known to man. I mean, this was the, you know, he was going to die. And even as he was headed there, he made sure that things were arranged for his disciples so he could spend time with them. Isn't that, I mean, just, that's amazing. Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus said to them when he sat with them, he says, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, Jesus wants to be with you. He wants to spend time with you. John 14, 2 and 3, he says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. Now we see that the Lord has a plan. Not only is he he's setting things in motion there presently, but he's saying there's a future. He says, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. So the Lord is looking out for us. He is preparing a place for us. Not only was he preparing a place for those disciples on that day, for the purposes that he had for that day, but for all who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He says, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then, you know, if we're alive during the rapture of the church, he's going to come receive us, and he's going to bring us back to the Father's house. Not only us, but all the dead in Christ will rise on that day in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible tells us. God has a plan, an amazing plan for each and every one of us. And when you think about these things, you know, it seems it's just amazing how uh, sometimes when you think on these things and you meditate on God's word and you, you think about his love for you, that you know, whatever it was that was bearing down on you, whatever life situation that was going on, just seems to fade away, doesn't it? It's all going to be okay, basically, is what he's saying. It's all going to be okay. Now, we knew that this is the beginning of the, you know, couple, the next 24 to 48 hours, Jesus is going to suffer greatly. But he took the time to be with his disciples. In verse 16, he says, So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just exactly. It doesn't say exactly, and I added that. Just as he has said. You see, Jesus doesn't waste words. He doesn't make mistakes when things he declares. The lamb had to be slain within the temple precincts, and the supper had to be eaten within the Jerusalem city limits. So Jesus made this, made this happen. Now, he was a wanted man. He, he had a... He had a, a, a a bullseye on his, on his head at this point. Because they'd already plotted to kill him and they'd already found somebody that would hand him over. And it says there they prepared the Passover. Now one writer said this, he said, in those days houses were simple structures with a second story added for the sake of hospitality or to generate extra income. Remember, you know, all these people coming for these three annual feasts every year, the place gets busy. And guests could use an external stairway to access the upper room without disturbing anyone below. They had their own entrance, most likely. And this room would have already been swept clean of leaven in anticipation 
of the feast that would have contained all the necessary furnishings. Remember, the Jews went through a ritual, even some of them to this day. They send the children around and they hide a piece of bread. They call it a, a fecomon or something like that. And they let the kids run around the house and they try to find the leaven before they start their Passover celebration. And so by now when they'd gotten there, they'd, cl they'd clean the leaven. Uh, they've taken out all the yeast, if you will. And then the disciples were to prepare the lamb, as we talked about. Jesus' celebration of the Passover on the night before his death does raise some important questions. If you're Bible students, and you may have heard of this, uh, when you read about the story, this, uh, the parallel story in John's Gospel, in John 18, 28, um, the question has come up. How could he celebrate the Passover on Thursday night when the Passover lambs were killed traditionally on Friday? And why do we say that? Well, in John 18, 28, it says when they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was in the early in the next morning, so on Friday. You know, we're going to read about this in the coming weeks. But they, did, they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled that they might eat the Passover. So this is obviously the next day. Uh, one, one Bible scholar and pastor, John MacArthur, writes this. He says, the answer to that question lies in the fact that in first century Israel, the Passover meal was regularly eaten on two evenings. It was regularly eaten on two evenings. Those from Galilee observed it on Thursday evening. That's where Jesus and his disciples were from, right? From Galilee. And those from Judea celebrated it on Friday. Consequently, Jesus was able to eat the Passover with his disciples on Thursday night and still die as the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, on Friday afternoon. Why do I tell you those things? Because you, in, your, in your, your experience with the world, and people will challenge you if you say, I believe the Bible is true. It may even come from Christians within the church. You need to know your scriptures, and you need to know about these little you know, hiccups, if you will. It's good information to know. But don't be, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus has done a wonderful thing and that he died for your sins. It doesn't change any of that. But it's good for you to know for, you know, people uh, are going to come after you if you're bold enough to witness. Some people are going to come after you and they're going to challenge the claims that you have for believing the Scriptures. They're going to challenge the veracity or the truth of the Scriptures. But here we have in verses 17 and 21, now we, we're here in the supper in the evening and we see the betrayal. And the betrayal happens just as it was written. Notice what happens on verse, in verse 17. They had... The evening he came in with the twelve. In other words, there were two already had prepared, but really when we refer to the twelve, it was Jesus and his twelve disciples there. They were the only ones in this upper room. The location was secured, the meal was prepared, and all twelve were present. Verse 18, it says, Now as they sat and ate, what were they doing? Well, over time, we need to kind of go through this. Over time, the Passover meal had become quite different from the original meal that was eaten in the desert. Remember, staff in hand, close to midnight, they're, they're roasting the lamb, they've spread the... It, it, was, it was a total different situation. It had become refined. And it's still like that today. If you've ever attended a Passover Seder, or if we host one here, maybe in this fall, uh, we have a Messianic Jewish group that would come in and they would demonstrate what they do during the Passover for the celebration. 
there were uh, several steps included in the meal. So here they were for the Passover meal. And so what follows is a very typical example of what they would have done. When all the participants were reclining in their cushions, the head of the feast would give thanks. Jesus would give thanks. And they would drink their first cup of wine, uh, which would have been wine typically diluted with water, and they would pass it around. They would drink the first cup of wine. Then they would all wash their hands, the next step. Then the participants were served a roasted Passover lamb as well as unleavened bread, no yeast, which meant it would be a, like a flat bread, if you will, like a pita bread, bitter herbs, and a dish of thick sauce in which the lamb and the bread would be dipped. Then they all dipped a portion of the bitter herbs into the sauce and they ate it. Then the children, if there were children present, they would be taught the meaning of the Passover. You know, this is why we've passed this from generation to generation to remember, always memorialize how Jesus delivered us, the Jewish people, from Egypt. Then the head of the feast would might say, this is the Passover which we eat because the Lord passed over the houses of our fathers in Egypt. Then holding up the bitter herbs, he might say, these are the bitter herbs that we eat in remembrance that the Egyptians made the lives of our fathers bitter when in Egypt. Remember how they were so cruel to, the, uh, to the, the Jewish slaves that they would have them make bricks without straw. And so their lives were bitter. And then the head of the, the, uh, the uh, dinner, which he might then speak of the unleavened bread and repeat the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 through 114. And then they would repeat those. They would sing those out loud together. They would conclude with a prayer, and then everyone would share, and they'd pass around a second cup of wine. Now, the presiding person of the feast would then break a loaf of unleavened bread and give thanks. The participants would eat some of the lamb. Again, they would partake. They would take a piece of bread and some bitter herbs. They would dip them in the sauce again. And they would drink the third cup of wine. They would pass the third cup of wine. It's called the cup of blessing. Finally, the participants would sing Psalms 115 through 118, and then at the conclusion of the feast, a fourth cup of wine would be passed. So that's the tradition, that's the Passover, that's what maybe the disciples were expecting. It was going to be something along those lines. But instead, Jesus says this, he says, assuredly, while they're having this meal, assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. I mean, talk about a downer, you know, talk, talk about, a, 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 you know, how to let's kill a party. Not that, they, not that it wasn't a somber event, but he let it out. He says, okay, here's what's going to happen. One of you, one of the 12 people that are sitting here with me is going to betray me. So he narrowed it down with divine certainty. That word betray, we, we saw it last week, paradidomai. That means to der- deliver somebody up treacherously. He was going to turn them over. Now, John's gospel informs us that Jesus knew full well, uh, of course, who his betrayer was. We know that. John 6, verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them. Back, way back in, 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 uh, in John's gospel, it says, Jesus answered them. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He said this early on. And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he, it was he who would betray him. 
being one of the twelve. So this was already spoken. This was already, uh, you know, uh, let known in the past. But think about Judas. Now you're in this situation, okay? Jesus is now starting to change the entire atmosphere. That's what Jesus does. He changes the entire atmosphere. Anytime you bring Jesus into a conversation, the atmosphere changes, doesn't it? He changes the entire atmosphere. And this, this for Judas, was the first warning. Because you've got to wonder, well, what was he thinking about? You know, here, here he is. He knows he's the one who's betrayed the Lord. And he's sitting among the twelve, and Jesus is not naming him at that time. The Scripture's silent about what Judas was thinking. But you could imagine... And their reaction in verse 19, uh, they began to be sorrowful and they said to him, one by one, one by one they went around the room and they asked the Lord, is it I? Is it I, Lord? Have I done this? You see, they were stirred to examine their hearts. Even Judas would, resp would reply. He would, he would ask the question. And for you and I, it's a good thing. It's a good thing when you think about you know, self-examination before the Lord. It's a, it's a sign of maturity when we examine our own hearts and our own sin instead of trying to examine others, right? We're good at that. And this would have been a second warning for Judas. Notice the Lord's grace here. It was another chance for Judas to repent. Judas may have acknowledged his sin, but he refused to repent of it. You know, he was, he was squirming in his, his lounge chair, wherever he was sitting. He was sitting, well, he's sitting right next to Jesus. We'll see he had a place of honor, sitting right next to the Lord. In verse 20, and he answered, he said to them, it is one of the twelve who dipped with me in the dish. Now it's getting closer, right? Because they were going to share this dish. John would be on his right. Judas would be on his left. So again, the Lord confirms that it's someone present. You see, the Lord even allowed Judas to have a place of honor, to be sitting right on his left side. Even in the midst of betrayal, think about this for a minute. Even in the midst of betrayal, what did Jesus do? He extended honor and friendship to Judas. An interesting side note, uh, sort of part of the, this, this dramatic situation that was taking place, we read over in John 13, verses 23 through 28. Because John was on his right side. And it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples who Jesus loved. That's John. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask him who it was of whom he spoke. You know, he's talking to John. He's like, who, who is this? Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, John, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered. He said, it's the one whom I shall give a piece of bread. And when I have dipped it, and having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one in the table understood. No one in the table knew for what reason he had said this to them. John explains a little farther along in verses 29 and 30. He says, For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy these things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor, having received the piece of bread. But then Judas went out immediately, and it was night. 
And so the very next time that Judas would see Jesus, it would be when he betrays him with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read about that in Matthew 26, 49 through 50. Immediately he went up to Jesus and he said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Even to the last second, the last moment of Jesus' betrayal, he was treating him as a friend and offering him to be able to have a chance to repent. That's so important for us to understand. That's so important for us to remember. And anybody that doesn't know the Lord, that right to the last breath that you have, you can acknowledge Jesus. Because Jesus will continue to show you honor and he will continue to offer you a chance at repentance because he's laid his life down for you. It says in verse 21 that the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him. All of the details of Jesus' coming, suffering, and crucifixion were set in stone. All the details of the fact that Jesus would be crucified and taken. And Paul wrote that it was all according to Scripture that it happened. It was None, none of this takes God by surprise. Uh, there's, a, there's a terrible... Uh, influencer out there who tries to teach college kids that Jesus was surprised somehow surprised of all the things that were happening to him his name is Bart Ehrman he was an ex-Christian he's a very prominent scholar and he teaches I think at UNC Chapel Hill and he's influenced millions of people to his atheism but he obviously hasn't decided to reveal all that the scripture says about Jesus. He knew full well where he was going. He wasn't surprised one bit. He says, but woe to the man. So Jesus, it says, excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul wrote, he says, For I delivered to you first all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was all written and planned. But Jesus says here, he says, but woe. That word woe, it's, it's almost, uh, it's, it's like an interjection of grief or denunciation. It's like an extreme, uh, you know, groan, if you will. And he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Matthew 26, 25 as Jesus was going around the room and they were asking, who is it, is it I? It says, Judas said, who was betraying him, answered, he said, Rabbi, is it I? Look at him straight in the eye, you would imagine. And he said to him, Jesus replied to Judas, he says, you have said it. So he confirmed it right to him, that you have chosen. And this was a third warning for Judas. Because Jesus was presenting to him the ultimate consequences. And the question is, could he possibly repent? Now, brothers and sisters, are you willing to examine your heart? Are you willing to realize the weakness of your human flesh? And if you do, do you realize that we all, as one pastor would put it, need a dose of the Holy Ghost? We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be sensitive to His leading and His convicting. 
But how about those of you who don't name the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You know, if there's anybody in this room right here or hearing this message, Jesus' words about Judas today, when he says it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are presently in the same danger that Judas was in. Because eternal life apart from God means hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In fact, this is a place where you would wish you were never born. Are you ready to receive Jesus today? You know, he calls you friend and he will come and sit with you and give you peace everlasting. Just ask anybody who's received him as their Lord and Savior and hear their testimony of how he came and rescued them. But don't put it off because life in this world is way too short to gamble. Way too short. Now we come to the Lord's Supper. Here we see that Jesus transforms the Passover now into a new covenant. Look at verse 22. Judas has left the house. He's gone. But as they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And this is what he said while they were eating. Jesus says, excuse me, he says, take and eat, this is my body. You know, they're having this meal, and they're they've normally expecting a certain type of ceremony, but now Jesus changes everything. Now the Lord was going to change the meaning of the Passover. Up to this point, the unleavened bread represented their hasty departure, as we said as well as their need to be separated from sin and worldly influences. But from now on, it would have a new meaning. The bread now represented his body, which he would soon offer as a sacrifice for sin. Keep in mind that the breaking of the bread was not intended as a direct symbol of how he died, and none of his bones were broken, by the way. But because they all partook of the same loaf of bread, they all shared in unity with each other. Luke twenty two nineteen, it says he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Mark doesn't give that, but Luke gives it here, and this is why we're going to do it today. We're going to do it in remembrance of Jesus. We're going to continue to take communion. In verse twenty three it says he took the cup and when he had given thanks, Jesus now brings a second element, a cup of wine, and most scholars believe this was possibly the third cup of wine, following when they had eaten the roast lamb, and we were talking about how they went through it, and they had already dipped their bread into bitter herbs. So now they're in the third cup of wine, and he gave thanks. Now that word thanks, or given thanks, is Eucharistio. Eucharistio, the English word for it is Eucharist. Giving thanks to the Father. That's what the Eucharist means. And he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Again, the unity of believers is symbolized in this act. In verse 24, he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. 
Jesus explains another symbol of remembrance for them and all future generations of Christians. He says, my blood, similar to the bread that was symbolizing his body, the wine now symbolizes his blood, but notice he says it's a new covenant. From here on out, things have changed. A covenant is like a compact or an arrangement between God and man. You have the Old Testament covenants with God requiring the shed of blood to seal the deal. Abraham's covenant, Noah's covenant, Moses' covenant with God. All required the shedding of blood. But Matthew 26, 28 says, Jesus explains, he says, For this, at this time, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. See, it all changes. On the cross, writes one writer, Jesus died as the perfect substitute, bearing the guilt of all who were chosen to believe in him. He endured the penalty of God's wrath, satisfied divine justice, and ratified the new covenant of forgiveness and salvation. Jesus' death constituted final payment, so that there was no longer a need for ongoing animal sacrifices. That was clearly demonstrated by the tearing of the veil at the entrance of the Holy of Holies when he was on the cross. And the promise of the Lord regarding the complete destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. We saw that several weeks ago. Jesus prophesying. And he says in verse 25, Assuredly I say unto you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When he says, until that day, again, that's a promise. You can write that down in one of God's promises because it signifies his return. Jesus promises to celebrate Passover with them and all the saints again when he comes into the millennial kingdom, when he rules from Jerusalem. And finally, in verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, again, another a hallel, so they continued with the tradition, they'd sung a, a hymn, Psalms 113 through 118 or 136. Um, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's what they did. And that's where we leave off today until next week. But right now we're going we're gonna to join together and we're going to take communion together. And, and you know, hopefully um, this message today maybe adds a little bit of a deeper understanding or a reminder for you of the great sacrifice that the Lord has done. It says, we learned from the scriptures as we said earlier that all of his believers were to continue to celebrate this memorial of this meal together. Keep in mind that this regular celebration that we do not only looks back at Christ's death, not only, not only looking backwards, but we also look forward to with this eager anticipation of our Lord's coming. The previous evening, the Lord had already given His disciples instructions about His return and about the end of the age. But now on the night before His death, He reassured them that the cross did not represent the end of the story. Amen. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we thank you once again for your loving kindness. Lord, we thank you for your great plan as we see how you are 
fully in control and fully in charge despite this crazy mixed up world we live in. Lord, we can have peace. We can have something that people really truly need and want, that every person wants, that that emptiness in their heart can be filled with your love and your truth, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that we would use this time to prepare to take the communion elements together as a church family. Lord, we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts. Is there something holding us back? Is there something in a relationship that's not what it should be? Is there bitterness in our heart? Lord, you've taken that away. Just as the Israelites no longer have to truly put those bitter herbs in their mouth because there's no more. It's gone. Even though they're looking back on the past, Lord, you've given us a promise to look forward. We have nothing to be bitter about. You have given us the sweetness of knowing that you look over, look after us and you care for us, Lord. And so, Father, go before us now as we prepare our hearts. Speak to us, Lord. Let us speak to you. Let us say, pray silently for Lord you to just to cleanse us once again, to bring us into unity together as a church body. We thank you for that. We thank you for the remembrance of what you've done and for the future promise that you've given us. Go before us now as we come to partake in the communion elements. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.